When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, here goes. Hello, and welcome to Played in Fall uh, on what's a pretty big day for film, given that it's Oscar nominations day. And uh, here to help me break all the nominations down, all the snubs, all the surprises, uh, is our regular co-host Jude. Hello, hello. Yeah, I'd say I'm I'm good. I'm a bit work rushed today. I've been working and freelancing as per usual. But yeah, I'm pretty excited. Pretty excited for this conversation. I feel a little bit stressed. A little bit, a little bit stressed. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't think we should waste any time whatsoever. I mean, this is what we're here to talk about. Um, before we start breaking it down into uh, categories, just on the whole. What did you think? What were your first thoughts? You know what? Sports reference, Kitty, so don't get mad at me. But you know what? My, it's not really a biggest surprise, but looking at it and having seen um, actually all of the films for the, for the first time with the nominees for directing, I felt like there's that one group of death with the nominees for the directing, like with the spread of films that were nominated. And I genuinely don't know who's going to win. And I'm not sure if I even have a preference because, yeah, all of the films are top-notch. So it's got Anatomy of a Fool, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, and A Zone of Interest, which I saw the other day. And if I'm honest, I was super tired after a work run, so I'm definitely going to have to re-watch it. But from the bits that I remembered, it was it was fantastically put together. So, yeah, I'm going to give a, a proper review on rewatch, which we're actually going to watch next week, right, Russ? The first. Yeah, I was going to say, 1st of February, we're we're seeing it in, at the BFI IMAX. So not only are we seeing it, we're seeing it on literally the UK's biggest screen. Love it. So that's, Love you know, but from all the, you know, it, Zone of Interest, quite a big, well, I say big player. It's got at least kind of five nominations um, kind of from today. So pretty kind of big player this year. Yeah. So that that should be good. And we'll have Jonathan Glazer in the room as well to talk through some of that. Um, but I mean, we can kick off with directing actually, um, because, you know, out of the few surprises that kind of came, I think, you know, direction was probably one. So as you mm. kind of, uh, as you just kind of listed there, Anatomy of a Fall, Justine Triet, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, Scorsese, who's now become the uh, most nominated living director, passing Spielberg, Oppenheimer, Chris Nolan, who, let's be real, is it's his category to lose. Um, and then Poor Things, Lanthimos, Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer. So, I mean, how are you feeling about that group? I think, Jude, as you say, it is a bit of a group of death. Yeah, it feels group of death, deathish, and yeah, when you when you do look at it, there's probably a clear, a clear should be winner there. But at the same time, man, like what a spread of film. I going off memory anyway. I, I can't remember like such a spread of a strong year, and there's nothing super glaring. Um, aside maybe like Margaret Robbie and not receiving like a nomination for Best Actress, but that's a whole mm-hmm. conversation we'll probably have. But yeah, I genuinely think this is 
it's one of those ones that's just going to conflict with me. Like, whoever kind of wins, I'll have, like, a supporting argument for any other film. But yeah, yeah, Oppenheimer yeah. probably does take that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a solid group overall kind of as well. You know, I think... I think the thing that is surprising and we can kind of cover off Barbie in a bit more detail in some of the other kind of categories as well, because I think it's more noticeable where it's been omitted this year. And, you know, I think for Greta Gerwig, I'm not too disappointed to not see her in this list because I just think the kind of the widest spread of films in terms of direction, like they are phenomenal. Like you kind of have to have this bunch in there. But I do understand the fact that, you know, for how important Gerwig has been for kind of for cinema and the achievements, especially kind of this year alone, um, mm. or last year rather, you know, you can see the case for why she should be in there. Um, but, you know, it, it's just been so strong. Uh, I think, you know, if we look at another kind of category there, Best Actress, Jude, as you alluded to, mm-hmm. I think that is probably more shocking for the omission of Margot Robbie. So that kind of list in full, we've got Annette Benning for Niad, um, Lily Gladstone, Kids of the Flower Moon, Sandra Huller. And as we have a fall, Carrie Mulligan, Maestro, and uh, Emma Stone, poor things. No Margot Robbie. It's insane. And one thing I actually wanted to ask, has anyone seen the ad? Because, yeah, I've heard great things about it. But again, it's not one of the films that I've seen anywhere like released in the UK. So, ah, it's on Netflix. You know what? So I have an issue with the straight-to-streaming services kind of like, well, it's bound to happen now, right? Because streaming services are so big, loads of films get those releases. But I feel like maybe if you look at the history of releases, say, for example, of like Netflix or Apple Films, a lot of them haven't been intended to go through cinema. They've just eventually done that, if you know what I'm saying. And yeah, yeah. I think that may be a, a film that slipped through the radar for me because... It's not one of the things that we strongly talked about, but yeah, I definitely have to check that out to um, kind of judge that properly, whether, Mm. you know, like Margot Robbie really was kind of, I don't know, swindled there, if you could say. But at the same time, there is kind of a bit of a Barbie hype train and many people didn't like the film. Other people really, really loved it. And I find it interesting that now the Barbenheimer hype is kind of, you know, evolved into this really great thing happened for cinema. The level of Barbie and the respect of it has kind of waned, whilst Oppenheimer's has kind of skyrocketed. It's like the seriousness of that film has, like, the seriousness of both film films have, like, evolved in different manners. And, yeah, that's also been very interesting for me to see. You know, before the BAFTAs, you would have said that it would be probably Lily Gladstone is to lose. Um, but it's now probably quite a neck-and-neck neck race between Gladstone uh, and Emma Stone. Um, to be to be fair, I think either of those are worthy winners. You know, I really love Lily Gladstone. I do think she's the best thing about Killers of the Flower Moon. But Emma Stone is just so kind of phenomenal and kind of disappears into that role in Poor Things mm. as Bella. So I don't think you could kind of begrudge any of those two winning and you know feel sorry for the other but it, it either one would be worthy winner um the Annette Benning thing is quite interesting because as it is the, the one thing about the kind of Oscar nominations and all kind of the anger that's gone through online today is you know everyone kind of a lot of people kind of think that it's the whole academy that votes on these categories and they kind of said you can't have seen that or you just didn't like it but it's um those shortlists are done by 
actually people within those bodies. So actors vote for actors, you know, editors vote for editors, at least at this stage before the final kind of shortlist come through. So as you kind of said, this is actual peers. These are fellow actors, similar like the Screen Actors Guild that kind of say these are the performances that impress us the most. And I think Annette Benning also got in, was that over was it over Gladstone or something? Someone else in um Screen Actors Guild Awards as well in the SAGs. So, or oh, was it Sandra Huller maybe? Um, but I, I know that I think I think Annette got in the, um, at this, at the SAG. So it you know to see her here probably isn't too much of a surprise. Um, and you know if you look in supporting kind of that actress as well, Jodie Foster also kind of making an appearance there for Nyad. You got Divine Joy Randolph who again has to be the front runner. It's hers to lose uh, for the holdovers. Danielle Brooks, Color Purple, Emily Blunt in Oppenheimer. And probably, again, one of the biggest surprises, especially given the fact that Michael Robbie didn't make it in, America Ferreira for Barbie. I just don't understand. Like, you know, I think America was fine in it, but I just don't see how you can look at Barbie and not invite, you know, not nominate Margot, but get America in there, particularly with some of the other kind of, I guess, candidates and supporting actress across the other nominations. It just seems very strange to me. I mean, if we, I mean, I just, again, I still haven't seen the zone yet, but you know, I, I was a little bit disappointed to see Sandra not get the double nomination. It's always quite nice when you see someone kind of get the double nod each year because <laughs> it normally then leads one way. I think it's happened 12 times. I think out of seven or eight of those times, they've won at least one of the categories. Um, so you never know. Um, Listen, in Anatomy of the Anatomy of a Fool, she was phenomenal, but again, talking about zone of interest from what I remember of it, mm. she was really good. It felt like a kind of a mood flip and switch from yeah. her character in, you know, anatomy of a fool, but yeah, super kind of chilling performance. And I can't, I actually can't wait to see it again and to hear what the director has to say at the Q and a, but yeah, yeah a dominant, the double nomination from the looks of it definitely would have been deserved. Uh, yeah, double nomination, man. Um, if we have a look at the kind of the other side, uh, kind of all that acting categories then. So we'll look at actor in a supporting role. So our shortlist is Sterling K. Brown in American Fiction. We've got Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower Moon. Robert Downey Jr., who probably has to be the favorite now. Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling in Barbie, and Mark Ruffalo does make it in for Poor Things, uh, and it's not the Poor Things double, so no Willem Dafoe, uh, and unfortunately no Dominic Sessa, no Charles Melton, so a few disappointments potentially, um, but I think that final kind of five probably is to be expected as well, just given all the other kind of award bodies and the kind of their shortlists. Definitely. Yeah, I think... Um... Dominic Sessa, I think, for a first-time actor as well. I probably would have mm-hmm. saw him in this, but again, probably the... Who here has seen American Fiction, by the way? Not yet. Uh, yeah, I think I do have an invitation to see it next week, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. But yeah, from what I've seen, again, Dominic Sessa, I would have loved for him to get a nomination for a first-time actor as well. And I know we're going to talk about the holdovers later, but he literally became an actor because it was one of the one of the actors at the Deerfield Academy, one of the mm-hmm. locations of the holdover sets. So they just put forward like 12 students and he became one of them. And um, yeah, they chose him. That performance was so inspired. I really feel like he showed almost a totality of acting skill 
And yeah, I was really, really impressed. But yeah, um, Mark Ruffalo, I've, I think, again, like a, it was a total switch up from the characters that I usually see him fulfill in films or TV shows and stuff like that. And yeah, that is, he definitely deserves that nomination. But again, as you said, Robert Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer, I think that was just a mad inspired performance and probably his best performance since, as he said himself, like one of the Iron Man performances, you know, obviously on a totally different spectrum and side of like seriousness when it comes yeah. to acting. But yeah, it was, it was great. I do think Robert, Robert De Niro was also phenomenal in Killers of the Flower Moon, but he felt like a lesser version of what Robert Downey Jr. fulfilled. And especially in a way it was directed with like kind of like the three different parts of Oppenheimer and how yeah, yeah, he yeah. sat in each of those roles. So, yeah. It's it's interesting because I think it's like the other way around. I like Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I say it's a showy performance, but I think given that we're so used to him, at least in recent memory, either being Tony Stark, being Iron Man, or doing, I say, smaller kind of bit films like The Judge or um, Due Date, stuff like that, not too yeah. much kind of deviating from, from Marvel. I feel like he's been given a massive leg up, and I feel like this is almost one of those sort of legacy kind of wins that the Oscars love to do. And, oh, here's this guy. He's paid his dues. He's showing he can act again. Let's let's reward him for it. Because out of that list, you know, I love Mark Ruffalo. Ryan Gosling is, is great. I haven't seen American Fiction, so I can't speak for Stanley K. Brown. But I out of that list, I think Robert De Niro is probably the best performance there at least the most kind of i think haunting and chilling for me hmm, that's interesting it'd be interesting i think i think that category still has an opportunity to perhaps throw a curveball but what I would think, the curveball be for you guys downey jr not winning i think that would be <laughs> the, like, the curveball would just be not downey jr yeah hmm. but it's hmm. but the nero is also an interesting one because like he did you know, especially some of his late career best in The Irishman, completely shut out from there. Um, and he just, I just don't think he's had the love, like, kind of in recent years, you know. Um, I mean, like, the last time I think he was nominated before this would probably have been Silver Lines Playbook, which I, I really loved him in. I thought he might have gotten for that. I think that was Christoph Waltz in the end. I think that was the year where all supporting actors had been nominated and won before. So it was going to be a double winner for whoever it was going to be. Um but yeah, you know, you know, I think perhaps if we are looking for a surprise actor in a leading role, I think that probably might give us one. It's a two-horse race, but I think it's such a toss-up between who. Um, you got Bradley Cooper for Maestro; it's not going to be him. Coleman <laughs> Domingo for Rustin; it's not going to be him. Jeffrey Wright, American Fiction; it's not going to be him. It's going to be either Paul Giamatti for Holdovers or Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer. <laughs> who do you guys want to win? I want. Oh, it hurts, Killian. Basically, what you guys <laughs> said about Robert De Niro, like literally, I think Killian deserves something because he also epitomized like Oppenheimer, and yeah, it, it's just it's, it feels really strange. But the holdovers, as I said so many times, I have such a love for it, and Paul Giamatti, he perfected that. Like, if I didn't know he was an actor, I literally would have thought he was a teacher, like a a classic teacher as he performed. So yeah, I think he really, he lived that role. He breathed that role and that deserves some type of recognition. So if, 
if he wins it, I'm not mad at all. If Killian wins it, I'm not mad at all. <laughs> but you're I mean, right. I think Bradley Cooper actually. Um, I think Jumati actually said that he was going to be a teacher if he, he didn't make it as an actor as well. So it you can tell, and I think you can really tell that kind of from the film. But um, top tier teacher energy for real. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's really interesting because we, we'll talk a bit more about the holdovers kind of uh, in a in a second, but. I always do love it when like an actual like an original character gets recognized. Part of my kind of challenge and issue with awards season generally is I feel for an actor it must be kind of easier to actually portray someone. I think one of the one of the worst results recently that I can remember was when um Eddie Redmayne won. Well, Rami Malek was. I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't talk about Rami Malek because I will take over this whole hour <laughs> and and we will not leave. Uh, that's. I mean. Bradley Cooper, you learnt the wrong lesson that year. You should have won. Rami beat you, and then you decided to do the same thing, and you're a fool for it. <laughs> um, but Michael Keaton losing for Birdman in what was genuinely a really great performance, and actually, you know, something unique to Eddie Redmayne, and I was just so disappointed. And I get it; it's because on screen. Once you, I, I don't know. I guess if you're a voter and you see someone transform into that individual, I guess they must. Something must just say this is a great performance because I think it's them. But I, I, I always find something original far more bet like kind of interesting and actually impressive because it's the same thing like this year. Like Emma Stone with Bella Baxter, sure it's a character that she'll see kind of lines of dialogue and descriptions for, but she has to bring that to life and kind of visualize it in a way that, you know, it must be harder. And, you know, if you look at Annette Benning and Jerry Foster biopics true stories they do carry a lot of weight with voters and they get it and mm. you know you don't necessarily need to like it but um I, so i think murphy still has the edge given the weight of oppenheimer um and also kind of the fact that you know it's a biopic they love them but it all probably comes down to screenplays and it's an interesting stat that i looked at earlier on because i said that killers of the flower moon has basically zero chance of best picture winning because it's not nominated in screenplay and only seven films ever have won best picture without a screenplay nomination the last being titanic uh in 97 and then before that sound of music 1965 it could be number eight but (laughs) i'm not i'm not counting on it but usually um usually it's through screenplays that you know best pictures kind of come through um so I think, you know, in recent memory, Spotlight, I think, was one uh, that kind of basically didn't pick up really too much, but it got the screenplay nod and it got the Oscar. Um, same thing like Green Book, screenplay, picture. But the, that, you know, the less said about Green Book, the better. Um, so this year, if we have a look at kind of original first, so we've got Anatomy of a Fall, just in 3A, uh, kind of in through there. We've got Holdovers, um, not written by Alexander Payne this time. It's... um. He's, he did say kind of when we saw it at the BFI with him in the room that he'd gone through and made his own edits and adjustments to the story. But it's a solo nomination here for David Hemmingson. Um, Maestro. Okay. May, December, which is the only nomination for May, December, which is really surprising for me, but maybe a bit too on the nose for actors to, to like. And finally, Past Lives. That is, I mean, that is a that's quite a difficult kind of, toss up as well I think you know I don't even know where the favorite would lie I would say probably the holdovers just given its love and its potential kind of route to best picture 
But and that movie before picked up at the Golden Globes, so it's got to be in there with a strong chance. And then Past Lives, you know, Past Lives got two nominations: screenplay, best picture. So, so it's also probably one you can't really rule out. I would like to see Anatomy of a Fall get it. I think, you know, out of the two, I, I mean, I love the holdovers. You know, I do think it's kind of like a smart script. I think, you know, it's got a lot of kind of wittier kind of moments within that. But I think Anatomy is just, I think, the standout there. And I think the fact that it got the Globe uh, win as well, I think that'll probably uh, propel it quite a bit as well. Yeah. If you look at that adapted screenplay kind of list, so as I say, No Killers of the Flower Moon, which is quite surprising, but we've got American Fiction, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. Um, Zone of Interest, I don't think is going to win it, purely because it's going to win international feature. You do not get nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and not pick up international picture. It, like It's going to be like um, Drive My Car last year. You've got your category secured. You're going to get a bunch of other nominations to say that we really love the film, but you're going to walk away with that only. And obviously no Anatomy of a Fall in international feature either because uh, Macron and the government said no thank you because they did not like Justine Trier's comments <laughs> when she accepted the Palm d'Or. So they've shot themselves in the foot. Um, but international feature's got some great stuff, you know, Society of the Snow. But yes, adapted screenplay... It- I think it's going to be interesting. I think Barbie has to be the favourite. And I think Greta Gerwig, Noah Baumbach, two industry favourites and darlings. I just think it's an easy way to kind of recognise Gerwig for Barbie. Yeah. The fact that she's not in there for director and realistically it's not going to win Best Picture. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I do think there would have been an argument for like a Best Writing original screenplay for Barbie, but... Again, like the spread of things that it's nominated for is recognised for so much already. But, yeah, I do. I would like to see Anatomy of a Fool win Best um, best Writing for Original Screenplay. And mm. as for the adapted, it's, a, it's such a shame because I would have loved to watch the zone of interest properly. But at the, at the moment... Oh, poor things for me. I would like poor things to actually to to win it. I do think maybe it's a time and having done like my that much more research on like the Greek weird wave and everything that Yorgos Lanthimos is going to mm-hmm. build up towards. I do think this is kind of his moment, and this is the film that shows just the ingenuity of what he can bring to the table. So that yeah, that for me, I would I would love for. I'd love for like Tony McNamara to to pick that up, but yeah, it's it's difficult because again, like the other the other films seem to be all based on on something like I, I don't know. It's it's a, it's a weird, it's a tough one for me. I could also argue a case for Oppenheimer. I think it was written mm-hmm. in such a unique way. I don't think we've seen a level of film like that in in quite a long time, especially with. Nolan directing and writing the film like is yeah like it's a lot it's a lot I think we all know that Nolan is probably walking away with best director unless there's some sort of kind of shock win on the night so I Mm. think again it probably is an easy way to say great let's recognize someone else in that category because Nolan's going to get and also get the probably the Oscar that he wants you know Mm. I think if if Nolan picked up a best screenplay but didn't pick up a director everyone will probably say good that he's got it 
you gave it to him for the wrong thing, though. And he'd be deserving of it, but it's it's not what he's there for. Yeah, I would say probably... Oh, it's difficult. Again, this might be another group of death situation for me. But Barbie, yeah, I, I actually don't have... I don't entirely have a problem with that. But I also think a strength of Barbie for me was the fact that, like you said, it's, even though it's not necessarily about much, it can also be represented as everything. Like even mm-hmm. in terms of the actors and the directional sense on set, it literally went from joyous, like a, a joyous kind of setting in the film to very existential and it covers such a wide range of things. So yeah, Greta maybe maybe does deserve it. Yeah. It's um it's gonna be it'll be an interesting one, as I say. I think we'll, we'll know more once the WGA kind of do their kind of awards in the in the run up to end of February, and that will basically kind of for the most part give us uh, our ideas. Um just before we kind of shoot into best picture and then move on, you know. I think it's flicking through the list, you know, some some nice surprises outside of perhaps some of the more disappointing kind of snubs and omissions. So we've got Godzilla Minus One yes. in there for visual effects, which is incredible, massively de- deserved. Um, and it probably stands a very good chance. I think the creator probably will get it. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't like the creator, but visually it was incredible. It's the one thing it does have going for it. Um, and also within VFX, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, first ever Oscar nomination for Dead Reckoning. And it's also there in sound. So it's first ever kind of Oscars uh, kind of nominations for a, a Mission Impossible movie. Um, we've got Zone of Interest has made it into sound as well, which I know that a lot of people were kind of surprised by. I do think for sound, I do think that's probably the one category where Maestro probably will get something. Because I think Maestro is, we you know, we've talked about it on the pod. I think it's cold. Uh, I just didn't enjoy the actual kind of the story and the narrative for it. But technically it is a very good film. And I think, you know, through that sound, through some of that kind of, you know, visual camera work, I think perhaps that's where it could get some love. But again, that's probably Oppenheimer's to lose. um, Just because it's Oppenheimer's just... My only concern with the Oppenheimer is, is it going to be like a gravity? So it's going to sweep everything technical and then we're just going to see a shock in Best Picture where they're like, actually. Because that year, Gravity won pretty much everything. <laughs> Quaron got director and then they're like, Best Picture, no. It's not for you. So who knows? Uh, original score, um, Oppenheimer, which is again probably the winner. Killers of the Flower Moon, which yeah. is great. R.I.P. Robbie Robertson. Poor Things. American <laughs> Fiction. I think some people have kind of said that that seems like a bizarre kind of addition. I've not seen the film, not heard the screenplay, so I can't comment on that. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. This is this has John to be, Williams. This has to be like a a sympathy kind of. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I don't think anything stood out worthy enough for a nomination in any category. Should have just stayed as a swung song for Harrison's Ford, and like, yeah. not to, yeah, no disrespect because I actually enjoyed it. Remember we had that discussion, we have like a couple pods back about whether it was good or not. But yeah, I, yeah, it was, I don't it, was, know. it was perfectly fine. That is, I think, a nostalgia nod. That's John Williams because did he come out of retirement for it? 
I think he might have. He's either it was his last film before he said he was going to retire, or he came out of retirement to do it. Um, so I think that is just a nice to have you uh, back, yeah. John. Here's one for the road. Um, yeah, uh, he's yeah, not no, going to get right. it. I, I do think that is disappointing. You know, fifty-four nominations. I think they said John Williams has had throughout kind of the history of the Oscars. It <laughs> seems unnecessary. It just yeah. You know, but, you know, doesn't need any more. But to be fair, the one thing I'd say about the film is it did give me that late 70s feel in terms of the sound. So I get it, but again, like you said, it's a sympathy, a sympathy yeah, it's, nom- nomination. It's also, yeah. We've passed that era so much. Like, yeah, it felt like I was listening to a 70s film, which is great in some respects, but pastiche aside, it's not something I'd rant and rave about now, and especially when you're overlooking even the animated, the beautiful animated scores that we've we've seen. You know, yeah, because you know, Boy and the Heron, amazing. You know, um, uh, Spider Man uh, across the Spider Verse. It's you know, Zone of Interest. All of these kind of amazing kind of scores that have come through just didn't make it through, and everyone was quite disappointed because um, Baft, was it Bafta left out Zone of Interest and Mikalevi's score as well, but it wasn't eligible. But it was it wasn't eligible, I don't think, and I don't, I'm not sure why. But it wasn't eligible in some kind of awards body. So whether it was ineligible here, I'm not too sure. But obviously, just a kind of a big disappointment. Oh um, man, wait. Um, Super Mario would have been able to be nominated for that, right? Because I loved that. Well, I don't. Well, uh, I, no, I actually did. I actually, I actually did. I thought it was, it was I, good. Okay, well, what they actually done with it was good. Yeah, it didn't make it into an animated feature, which is kind of surprising. Give it because yeah. you know with the like, Oscar like voters and stuff as well. There's always kind of like this big lean on now on box office just as well as artistic integrity whatever yeah and you know second biggest film of last year you would have expected perhaps to see it in there no uh teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem um but you know i need to see namona and robot dreams there yeah robot dreams i think is probably the bigger kind of surprise there because that's got really great reviews so i'm I'm really looking forward to see that um that's probably a toss-up between spider-man and boy and the heron that's going to be a really difficult one it's also interesting because namona for the annie awards which are essentially like the, I say the Oscars for kind of animated films is the uh, leader. So it had the most nominations throughout. So that could possibly be, um, you know, uh, a surprise win kind of come Oscar night. Um, but then finally, if we'd like moving into best picture, American fiction, Anatomy of a Fool, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro. Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. Nothing really, you know, as I say, Spider-Man, I think, had a very good case to be there. And, you know, it was my kind of second favorite film of kind of last year. So I do think, you know, it's a shame that it's not there. But that total list seems about right. Yeah. If you took Maestro out. (laughs) <laughs> your dislike for Maestro has been steady like it's been steadfast since you've seen it so I respect that I appreciate <laughs> when people are just you know they've got the but yeah Maestro definitely could have dropped out for me I even thought it was really impressive in parts but as you said Spider-Man was definitely one of my favourite films of mm-hmm. last year and I feel like it made 
such an impact. And like, um, remember last year we were talking about the latest um, Puss of Boots film as well, right? Incredible, incredible film. But genuinely, I think Spider-Man sits ahead of so many different films, not just in his, his... the animation was so overwhelmingly good. I think I watched it like yeah, three, yeah. four times in, in cinema with different people just to enjoy it and enjoy their reaction to it. But the storytelling and the way they intertwined all of those different factors, like, yeah, that is kind of my biggest disappointment like, so far with these like, nominations. But yeah, I think, or oh, I'm rather hoping it gets recognition elsewhere someday, somehow. But yeah. I think that is probably the biggest miss for me as well. Yeah, maybe it, it might pull like a kind of like a Toy Story situation where that final kind of, well, I know Toy Story 4 came, but like the trilogy, the closer mm. might kind of be the one that kind of goes through sort of a similar thing to like Lord of the Rings. The first one gets kind of lots of love. Middle one, not so much, but then that third one comes through, kind of culminates everything. And then they're like, yeah, okay give that the push that kind of gets through in the world listen it makes me sick because literally like lord of the rings the the two towers was ridiculous it was ridiculous it was like one of the perfect segues for like a trilogy in that sense like i love the film i might actually have to rewatch that tonight just to fall asleep but yeah good point yeah i mean oppenheimer was my favorite film of last year my favourite film of this year so far is The Holdovers. And, you know, I'll talk more about what I think of that shortly. Um, but it will probably be at least in that kind of top two or three, probably by the year end at this point. So either of those for me would, would be great. Although seeing Oppenheimer win would be funny just to see Warner Brothers like properly in the mud. You know, <laughs> they literally had him kind of tied to the studio. They pissed him off to such a degree that he decided to leave, goes to Universal, and at the first time of asking, he might get everything they ever dreamed of. I mean, that's that just hilarious. poetic justice to me. <laughs> so final, final kind of tally counts, if we have a look at everything with kind of multiple nominations, Past Lives with two, Nyad with two, Napoleon sneaking in there with three. Um, that's very under the radar. It's not quite well, really thing. I get it. Uh, Anatomy of a Fall, Zone of Interest, Holdovers, and American Fiction, all with five. Maestro with seven. Barbie with eight. Killers of the Flower Moon, ten. (laughs) The one thing with Killers of the Flower Moon is, are we going to have the Scorsese trilogy where he has a film that gets ten nominations and doesn't win any? And I think that's very possible. That is is scary. I I hope he doesn't do a number in his heart because I need more from him. But yeah, that that is scary, man. I mean, that's it's a real possibility, and also like look at kind of like the last few years as well. There's always a film every year because I think Poor Things is here with eleven. I think it could be either way. I think Poor Things has a very good chance in some other categories, but I do think that it could be sort of like the True Grit, the Irishman, whatever kind of of that year, Nightmare Alley, where it's in loads of categories, it just doesn't get anything because it's always pipped by something else. So I think that might be one of the surprises that we see. Perhaps Killers or Poor Things just doesn't walk away with anything. You know what kills me about the Oscars as well? Everyone is like <laughs> getting your best dress to go to the Oscars and you're nominated for like 10 things and you don't win one of them. That must be so painful, especially with the amount of work that these guys put into promoting films and 
and everything else. Like it must be really bittersweet. Like of course there's other awards, but this is this is the WrestleMania, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I hope they they do both get something. But yeah, it would it would definitely be kind of funny if if it doesn't happen. But you didn't get anything. <laughs> It's happened, man. It happens. Oh. The Academy Awards are cruel. Oppenheimer are the leader with 13, but I, I, I don't know. I think someone's going home empty-handed completely. Fuck. Yeah. Why am I, why am I anxious? Why have I got anxiety? Because <laughs> that's how it works, man. That is that is literally the, the Oscars. I mean, I've not watched it live for quite a few years now, Same. but I used to watch it live and... You would. It is proper kind of nerve wracking. It's very stressful. Yeah, I think this is probably especially when you see Rami Malek win, and you're like, "This is fucking bullshit." It's three a.m. and I'm stayed up to watch a man with fake teeth win best like actor. Like, no. As I say, I can't talk about it because I will derail. Let's talk about. It's funny. Literally, sometimes I have nightmares. Um, The holdovers. It's there. It's in one of the most nominated films kind of uh, at the Oscars this year. Also, the dark horse that could potentially pip Oppenheimer to best picture. I want that to so, happen so bad. Dude, I know that we've already kind of waxed quite lyrical about it already. Um, yeah. <laughs> Give me your breakdowns. What do you absolutely love about it? You know you know what? Like, Obviously, Kite, during your first episode, we, we touched on this briefly. And it was actually making me it was making me a bit annoyed the way Scully was talking about it because it was like he didn't want to put it alongside some of the best like type of Christmas or coming of age films ever. But he also I don't know, it just felt like a bit of a downplay of how classic of a film this could and should be. And yeah, like everything that you, you said, I feel like um Ross, like at the Q and A that we attended the other day, they they confirmed or clarified why it felt that way. So in terms of like the editing, the natural lighting used on set, the way they utilized the locations, the way in which the cast came together because they didn't have like a production where it was, where it was split up and the trailer section was over there. The production teams here, refreshments over there and the runners over there. It was like everyone in totality worked on this film together. They often sat in big rooms and spoke about the script, spoke about characters, spoke about different elements of the film, and then they fulfilled it through their acting. And I really think Alexander Payne like perfected that set, that moment, that time period, and the prestige of that type of coming-of-age film from that era to a T. It literally feels like you're stepping into the 70s. And again, even with like the, the score he put together, I think it complemented it so well, like a spread of genres that were so popular at the time, the setting of New England, Boston, which I know is very, it's quite aged in contrast to most of the other cities around America and states rather. So yeah, like in totality, I just really think they put everything and more into this and that Q&A, man, like I need to attend yeah. way more Q&As or films that I really love because I've been to, I was at a Q and a for Maestro and it just felt like, it felt like they were forcing the chemistry that they had on set into the Q and a to show like, yeah, we're here with the two leads of this film. Come enjoy. watch the film? But it didn't feel as immersive. 
you know what I mean? Like in terms of explaining how everything really came together. And yeah, the holdovers just seemed like a journey for all of the the filmmakers, the crew, the cast. And yeah, that is a timeless film to me. I'm going to have to watch that like probably every year. It's a film that I've suggested to everyone. And yeah, it's become one of those mm-hmm. films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because um, it's interesting because obviously, I think you caught it at London Film Festival last year. I assumed it was going to become uh, kind of, you know, come out before Christmas. And then finally they said, oh, great, it's going to come January 19th. It's like, that makes absolutely no sense. Um, but whatever. And, you know, it, it's funny because um, I'm trying to get Antia to kind of watch it with me. And we were going to go the other day, but we're watching kind of the trailer and cinema when we were watching something else. And it's kind of flagging up saying, you know, like, oh, you know, spreading Christmas cheer and like the holiday joy. And she's like, but it's fucking January. Like, this doesn't make sense. So it's a shame that it didn't kind of get that release because I just think for an English audience as well, if you put that out peak December time, uh, you know, it would have been kind of rapturous. And I think actually it would have probably done so much more cause for, you know, all kind of nominations. But then, you know, the British clearly love it as well. Dominic Sessor only kind of getting in at the BAFTAs uh, kind of surprisingly. Um, as a whole, you know, during that screening that we had at kind of the BFI last week, it was a movie that I just became more kind of enamored with the longer it kind of went on. And, you know, it started out and it's kind of very kind of cheery and you kind of, it almost plays out sort of like one of those sort of like 70s, 80s, like screwball comedies, just almost a bit like kind of slapstick type thing. You know, it might have been one of those films you might have had the old SNL cast in, like Steve kind of Martin or something. And it just kind of slowly evolves and transforms into kind of something kind of very different. And I think you kind of first see it early on when, you know, all the kids start going home for Christmas and then the holdovers are there. And he's talking about, you know, life kind of being the the hen house, short and shitty. And you've got the kid who's being very disrespectful um, to uh, Divine Joel Randolph's character. And at that point, you know, you're starting to kind of get those little kind of elements of, of the drama and actually kind of that character study come through. And yeah, just as it continued on and on and that story evolved and you get some of the kids move away and then you get your core trio, it just becomes something so beautiful and moving and actually just deep i thought you know it's it's a film that on the surface especially from those trailers it looks like it's just going to be kind of like an out and out comedy um you know fun christmas fair but it's actually something a lot kind of at times darker but a lot more kind of moving and meaningful and towards the end you know i was absolutely kind of in love with it you know i kind of didn't want it to end and as soon as it did i thought you know i this is, you know, I'm glad that this is the preview for us and it gets to come out again and I'm going to go see it. Um, I think it's probably, you know, Divine Joel Randolph's incredible. Um, she absolutely is obviously the front runner for everything as she should be. For Dominic Sessa to be just a complete kind of unknown non-actor who just showed up and said, look, I go to school here, let me have a go. Incredible. Um, you know, you've got Casting directors kind of looking at that now thinking, fuck, we've got Chalamet to do the Bob Dylan movie. And then he's doing all these kind of press runs. And everyone's like, oh, we probably should have hold fire and kind of, you know, given him the role. Yeah. Um, but then I think we should probably talk about Paul Giamatti as well, because Ridiculous. It's, it's an incredible performance. It's, um, you know, it is funny. He's got the kind of the, the, the great lines. He's got the good kind of like punch lines. But he does something so 
beautifully in terms of kind of that melancholy and that kind of just general sadness. And, you know, there's the bit at the party mm-hmm. where the whole time everyone's kind of egging him up and it's kind of saying, you know, the, you know, the, the woman from work fancies you and stuff. And then her boyfriend comes home and that kind of moment of just flat sadness and it just lingers in on that face. And, you know, I just, I think as a character study, it's, it's perfect. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's just the best film of the year so far. If it came out last year, it would have been at least in the top two yep. of, of the films from last year. Um, I just love I, it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And even to touch on one thing that you you said, those little moments, and you, you can feel like it's a comedy from the trailer and even from the starting moments of the film, but I feel like it finally adds like little specks of that that deepness with so many different characters and angles and it builds up to be something so beautiful and um mm-hmm. kitty earlier when we we're talking about nominations you said like the three leads and actually watching the film the first time at the london film festival i didn't watch any trailer i didn't read anything about it so i just went straight into it and from like the first 20 30 minutes i thought the two leads were dominic Sessa and paul giamatti but over time, for me, Mary becomes the strongest lead and a representation of almost everything that's happening. Like last week, we described it as like a coming of age film for so many characters. And I looked at Mary's story, story um, fulfilled by Dave I and Joe Randolph. And there was, just, there was just so much, so much to it. And so even thinking of like the story of Curtis Lamb, the religious nature of the US itself, the migration students, the the kid, I forgot his his name, the Korean, the Korean kid that ends up even wetting himself on the bed. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. so many little so many little elements of storytelling there that doesn't have to say much, but it implies so much that and also through the editing, I feel like it gives you time to process these things. It might slip in a joke to smooth things over, smooth over the, over the cracks of the film. But literally in transition, you're there thinking of that story element, of that device and how it unfolds into the wider story. And again, like talking on Paul Giamatti, one of my favourite scenes of his is when that asshole kid, I forgot his name, <laughs> is talking about Mary behind her back. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just breaks from this kind of comedic tone of trying to just get everyone to be involved, like they're the holdovers. But it's like he snaps, and then he's simply says like, "You don't know what that woman has been through." And again, he implies so much without saying so much. So yeah, just the power of this film, I think, is yeah, it's just fabulous storytelling. I, I don't know the last film that really made me feel this way, even especially like on second watch, there's so many films that I've, I've watched as of recent and it's like, I've really enjoyed them. But even in watching this again, when it came out in cinema or rather at the Q and a, like extremely powerful, even that much more touching. So yeah, I'm probably going to give it another watch. I'll give it some time. I'll promise a friend I'll take them at the end of the month to see it. (laughs) So yeah, I can't wait to revisit it with shiny eyes i think that i think the thing with it is the fact that it is very nuanced because you have a lot of those sort of elements that with a different pair of hands 
different cast, kind of different screenwriter, could easily be very kind of melodramatic and really kind of overplayed. But the writing is kind of very kind of balanced and measured. And, you know, it is a character study. And that is where its strength lies. And that kind of central trio don't really ever kind of veer into melodrama, which is why, like, you have those scenes where you see the melancholy and you see the sadness. It's quite, it's downplayed almost to a degree. Like, even when you're in that same Christmas party, you have that kind of moment where, you know, Paul Hunnam realizes that he's kind of misread the situation. He's essentially being rejected. And you have that kind of really kind of, melancholic moment of just his face on screen and he does so much just within that just with facial expressions and in the next kind of scene or two along it's that moment with mary kind of in the kitchen and she's having the breakdown but it's not over the top she's not smashing stuff it's not kind of hysterical it's again it's kind of very measured and balanced and it's kind of it does so much with almost like with the restraint of not pushing it too far. And like later on, um, you know, when you know, you've got Dominic Sessa and when he goes to kind of see his his dad, uh, obviously in the, in the medical facility, again, all of it is played very kind of balanced and measured. It's not pushing it to extremes. It's just kind of breaking this kind of information and introducing these elements of why these characters are, are so kind of isolated and melancholic. And then also using that to kind of then bring this kind of joy uh, to it all and obviously kind of bring them all together, you know? And I think that's why I just kind of loved it so much. And especially over time as it kind of progresses, because you, you know, it just does it so well of drip feeding this information, you know, and everyone kind of going back on themselves. It also kind of calls back to kind of moments. I think sometimes with films, it doesn't ever kind of do that. It just plows ahead a hundred miles an hour. So the bits where, you know, um, Angus lies when he kind of breaks his, you know, pops his shoulder out and he's saying, oh no, this is my dad. I don't get to see him, blah, blah, blah. Don't make us pay on the insurance. We're paying cash. And you've got Hunnam say, you know, we're Barton boys. We don't do that. And it again, it comes into play later on. And, you know, it's it's clever in the script to first of all, kind of do that call back, but also kind of in, it gives us, as you kind of say, say, like it trusts us to remember those beats and also to kind of understand why our character motivations so that when we can see them evolve and grow it's it's just brilliant um and also you know the whole lazy eye thing is incredible as well <laughs> very well played and they, they they swap the eye i think throughout so it's yeah oh, it's so, sick. so it's always kind of keeping you on your toes so you know like even like even like to the minor details i think you know it, it's it's so well done um and yeah it's a it's a christmas classic like already like I'll watch it again this week with um with Antia, and then I'll watch it as soon as it's available on, on Blu-ray, and I'll I'll pick that up for Christmas. Absolutely, kind of one hundred percent. Um, but yeah, no, I just I, I just I it. genuinely don't remember the last time I loved a film like this. Like as as we were talking about this, the theme song has been playing in my head, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the opening song, like track of the yeah, is is truly truly wonderful. I actually can't. I can't suggest it enough. So, yeah, I just, I can't wait for like a, hopefully after the Oscars and after people start picking up their awards, the holdovers and Deva and Joe Randolph, I really hope she like sweeps the category she's been nominated for. And yeah, I would love for it to get like a, a second boost or a second 
lease of life here in the in the UK, and they quite they do they do that quite often, right? Like when Academy Award winning pitches are performing really well, they would probably just have like another kind of run in terms of releasing it in bare different kind of cinemas and and such, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it tends to happen, you know, even like this weekend, um, some of that's kind of happening now. Uh, Parcel Labs is out, I think, in at least in the showcase here in Southampton, again, Sick. for like basically one night only. Um, but yeah, but I, I suspect anything that kind of sweeps and picks up will probably get showings at least, um, maybe not necessarily mainstream cinemas, but at least kind of your art house, your your Kersons, your picture houses. Yeah. Ooh, you know what? That'd be so. Yeah, get out and see. Past it. lives is even showing in Prince Charles Cinema. That is on Thursday. I might, I might go and check it out. I never got to see it like on a big Shout screen. Out Prince Charles. Yeah, fantastic cinema. But yeah, man, like that. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful film. Search. <laughs> I think that brings us quite nicely to the end of this kind of a uh, this week's episode. But before we go, what else is everyone watching or planning to watch? Ooh. What suggestions have you got for everyone? You know what? You've been watching... You started True Detective, right? This is one of the shows... I did start True Detective. It's one of the shows that have just evaded me. I was so... I It's always been on my like watch list. I just haven't had the time. But I'm going to start because I would love to catch up and see what the new season's about. So True Detective is what I'm going to watch. You've never seen a single episode? I started it. But I didn't finish it. Like I'm the type of person I want an uh, undivided attention. I want this to have my full attention. And I think, but I've also got to a point where I've forgotten some things that have happened because it was constantly spoiled throughout whilst it was running for me. But okay. I don't know much. It's like my mind has gone back to a clean slate. So yeah, I just get to okay, go yeah, into yeah. it again. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, like like Jude, I've just finished rewatching series one of True Detective because I've started the newest season with Jodie Foster kind of as our lead and it's strong start. It's got kind of like good creepy mystery. Um it's got really kind of nice nods and callbacks to things like the thing, you know, set in kind of like an Alaskan kind of town during the sort of kind of like eternal night, as it were, when the sun doesn't shine. Um and it's off to a good start. It's nice and creepy. It's got the right atmosphere, enough intrigue kind of early on. Um, I think the one thing probably that might derail it is it's giving a lot of little Easter eggs to series one, which I don't recall the other series doing doing that because obviously they're more standalone, almost like anthology pieces where you kind of each season's different, you know, uh, kind of different story, different kind of crime. So good start. But uh, we'll just need to see how the kind of that progresses, and uh, see if there's any issues from there. But otherwise, that's about it from us this week. You might hear from CJ at long last. <laughs> I think he might join Scully in giving a little rapid review of Daniel Kaluuya's The Kitchen, which has just come out on Netflix. Jude, I know that you saw that as well, BFI uh, festival last year. So be interesting next week to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, it'll be an interesting discussion. Really <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.